So first reading from John 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Indeed, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to spend a bit of time this morning uh, sitting and thinking and praying through like, the concept of glory, um, what it is, why it matters, um, if there's an impact that God's glory might have on our lives, and a bit of a spoiler, hopefully we're going to get to the end and we'll see the link between God's glory and what it looks like to have perseverance in our faith, be people who keep following Jesus even when we're feeling ground down. I was having a pastoral chat uh, with someone a couple of weeks ago now, and uh, they were just sharing about, I guess, some of the darkness that had been going on in their life this year. Uh, They'd, I guess, made some decisions that had not gone particularly well, Um, and they'd been making some decisions from a place of not necessarily, in their words, following Jesus in every aspect of their life. Um, In a particular part of life, they just felt really, really ground down, had lost a bit of resolve, uh, I guess, to believe and to live like Jesus is better, uh, that uh, he really does have there and our deepest needs um, in mind and he cares for them and he has power to do something about it. And I was sitting there and listening this very beautifully honest person sharing their story and thinking, wow, like this, I've got this as well. Like I'm feeling, I've had moments this year where I have felt really ground down. And 
there are areas of my life where it feels much more natural to follow Jesus. There are areas of my life where it feels more unnatural, like it's, it's walking against the tide or against the current. And I suspect, or I wonder, if you've been part of this conversation, you might have sort of reflected something similar. There are bits of life that just don't feel like shiny and easy. And sometimes I, can, I admit that I get up and I'm like, oh boy, this is just a struggle. And I feel ground down. And yet as a conversation went on, it was just the most encouraging time. I, like, my heart was, and soul was warmed because this was actually something that had been sort of historically true and what they were doing was, I guess, like bringing, bringing me up to speed but also sharing where they're at now. And they're making really different decisions. They're making really life-giving decisions. And I, out of genuine curiosity, asked them what had made the difference. And they said it was in praying with someone and sharing their story and then praying with someone that they had re-experienced Jesus in his glory. They had seen the glory of God, that they had felt the healing relief of his grace. They'd felt the convicting release of truth. And so I was like, all right, well, what does that happen then? What does every day look like now? And they said, each day I make the decision to look at Jesus. Each day I gaze on his glory and it outshines everything else. And I want us to be, not just them, I want us to be a community of what I've decided to call glory gazers. I want us to be a community of glory gazers, people who have seen the glory of God and who see his glory daily, who radiate that glory to each other and who radiate God's glory to a world who is so in need. But it begs a question, what does glory mean? The word came up a few times in the passage, but passages uh, that Chris read, but what does it mean? And if you think about how we use the word glory uh, like conversationally, it might mean um, like, uh, like you're the best at your career. So uh, this particular sports person, you know, um, has all of the glory in the sport of their choice. Uh, we might use the word glory to describe someone who's returned a return service person um, and humble service. But also, I think now glory has um, a pretty strong theme of influence. Like I, uh, when we, the sort of people that we want to become like are the people who have influence. But I think a tool for reading the Bible is less about going, how do we use this word in our current vernacular? Um, or what does the dictionary say about a word? I think a good way for reading the Bible is to say, well, how does the Bible interpret this word? What, what tips are there in the stories, or in the passage? How can we let uh, how the word is used uh, draw a picture of what it might mean in the text? And so that's what we're going to do. I guess like um, benching a little bit how we might use the word glory and seeing how the Bible, particularly in Exodus 33 and in John 1, uses it. And so if you open up your booklet and look uh, at the Exodus passage first, um, we'll go from verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will call all my goodness to pass in front of you 
and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So what is this passage, this little part of Exodus, how, what insights might it give as to how we could think about God's glory? So firstly, God reveals his glory by revealing his name. So God knows Moses by name, and in showing his glory, he will be proclaiming his name, so Moses and he will have an, a relationship, right? And it's not like, please wear your name tags at church so that when I forget your name, I can like glance down and be reminded of it and then make eye contact and chat. It's not that kind of name. The name in this context is about an intimacy of knowing. Like if you know someone's name, you know them. And there is a, a truth in this type of knowing, in this type of revealing. So I think it shows us that there's something about glory that is embedded in relationship. God knows us and is inviting us to know him. Next, God reveals his glory. You might have noticed in the passage by showing his goodness. So it's like a part of his nature. Because actually, instead of speaking about glory initially, God speaks about goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. So Moses, seeking after the glory of God, is actually met by being shown part of his character, his good character, what it is that makes up his name, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion. And in the next chapter in Exodus, uh, God spells out his name even more. Uh, you might have read when it says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This is who God is. God could actually be a monster, but he's not. He shows his glory by showing his goodness. And so it means there is something about glory that is a revelation of God's character and his personhood. You will have noticed in the story that Moses, though, can't see God's glory. He can only be near it. Right? He's put in the cleft in the rock. But God says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. You, there's an analogy that's often used to talk about God and God's glory. And it's that of the sun. That the sun shines so brightly that even when there's something fun like a solar eclipse, we actually can't look at it. And it's not, believe it or not, because the sun is too bright. It is because our eyes are too weak. So there is something in that about the relationship between God and humans. We can't, in this story, Moses can't look directly at God, but it's not God's fault. You might remember the story in Genesis where God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and then evil entered into the world, and suddenly they couldn't be there anymore. Like, we cannot walk. Moses could not walk, and we cannot walk with God in the garden anymore. Evil and sin and brokenness has ruined that. God's fullness cannot be seen by us anymore. 
And so there is something about glory that is too much for us. There is something about God's glory that is too much for humans who have been impacted by sin. Glory can only be seen in full if evil isn't a problem. And Moses gets a glimpse of God's glory on a mountain. He's gone up to uh, receive instructions on how he's going to build the place where God will come and meet with his people. And the other part of the story in Exodus is where God comes as a cloud and the Israelites follow that cloud and during the day and there's a pillar of fire by night. So I think there's also something in the story that's like geographical. Like there's something about God's glory that is about space and time. Glory is where God is. And so if Exodus shows us that God's glory is about being embedded in relationship, it's about knowing God, knowing his name, being exposed to his character, and yet there's something that is too much for us as humans, that um, sin gets in the way, and yet there's geography there. Well, I think the story that um, the... The story of Moses, what I think it wants to bring to light, is that that there is a problem. There is a problem that arises that Moses, despite what is true of God's glory, Moses can't see it in its fullness. But that's where John 1 comes in. So the word became flesh. So Jesus, God, came and became a human and he made his dwelling Uh, He tabernacled, he pitched his tent, he made his long-term home among us, among humans. It says, we have seen his glory. This we is John, um, is John and the people that John was connecting with in the first century. But it's also us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So John just begins by addressing this problem full on. Yes, you might have heard that in the Old Testament, uh, people wanted to see God's glory. People wanted to see God and they couldn't. But let me tell you this good news story. Something has changed. And now we can see his glory. And actually, this is just the intro to the book of John, right? The whole rest of the book is story after story after story of John unpacking how it is that this is possible, how it is that the disciples and early followers of Jesus can see God's glory, and as well, how we as readers of John in 2023 can as well. And so I guess you could summarize John like this. If you want to know who the true God is, if you want to know what glory, true glory looks like, take a long, hard look at Jesus. John also points out that Jesus' glory comes from the Father. So um, throughout John, Jesus talks quite a lot about him not wanting to take on human glory. Like there's stuff about um, things happening in secret or him not wanting to tell people as a theme through some of the Gospels. He doesn't want to take on human glory. And he actually criticizes people who do. But instead, he's making the point that Jesus' glory comes because of the Father giving it to him. So I think this shows us, to add to our sort of continually working definition, that glory has something, is not something that even Jesus could well up within himself. 
Glory is something that can, true glory is something that can only come from God. And you might have also noticed in the verse uh, that the words grace and truth, that God's, Jesus' glory is full of grace and truth. I actually think this is really quite similar to the Exodus passage where there is something about God's glory that shows us who he is, shows us what his character is like. God's character is centered around grace and around truth. And there is something about glory that focuses us in on this grace, on God's love, God's deep and um, abounding love for his world. Something about glory that focuses focuses us in on his faithfulness and on his holiness. Uh, the first, uh, I guess, like uh, sign that Jesus shows in John's gospel is that famous one where he turns water into wine. And the line that John has after this story is that what Jesus did here was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there's a party, the, water, the wine runs out, Jesus turns water into wine. Why? to reveal his glory, and so people might believe in him. And so it means there's something about God's glory uh, that displays what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah in the, the wine and water part of the story. There's something about glory that displays what it looks like for God to be at work in his world and how he does things. There's also something about God's glory in this story that talks about and shows that there's an invitation for causality. There's an invitation for change. Jesus did this, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. Another um, one of my favorite stories is that also reveals the glory of Jesus is the one at the foot washing story where uh, Jesus and his disciples are sitting around and Jesus washes their feet. Now, if you know anything about first century um, cleanliness, they would have been manure and uh, what's the stuff that comes out of a toilet called? Sewerage, thank you. Sewerage-covered feet. That's gross, right? And yet here he is washing them, not wanting the dirt in the house in good custom, but also as an act of other person-centered love humble service. In fact, he even washes Judas's feet, knowing that Judas would betray him. So there's something about glory that John wants us to see, where glory is linked to humility, glory is linked to serving, glory is linked to other person-centered love. So we sort of built a bit of a picture of what God's glory looks like. It's found, John tells us, in ultimately looking at Jesus and that giving us a vision of who God is and what he is like and of knowing and believing in Jesus and his humility and self-giving love. But that's not an easily memorable definition. So Tim Chester sums it up like this. God's glory is his godness. It's what is truly just God about God. God came to earth and made his long-term home here, enabling us to see his true godness, his true glory. So Jesus is God's true godness. Jesus is how we see God's glory. And we see it in 
God's godness in Jesus' birth and in the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, um, in fulfillment of God's action in the world so far. We see God's true godness in his teaching and in the miracles and the signs and all of these things that reveal his godness. We see it in his life, in Jesus' life and in his teaching. We see it in his character, in how he interacts with people, how he is in the world. We see it in his personhood and in the relationship that he has with God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we see his godness in just this reality that he came to earth to make his home here and the incredible impact that that had on so many who met him. All of this and more, but all of this shows us God's glory. It shows us his godness. And yet the climax of this, according to the Bible, is God's godness being on display in its fullness at the cross. So Jesus died, he went to the cross, and he died to defeat all evil and death. This is him being his most true self, God being at the highest form, the purest form of his godness. Because in going to the cross, he not only defeats evil and death, but he brings into fruition a restoration plan for our very broken world. It is the most God thing for God to do. The most loving thing, the most good thing, the most compassionate and the most merciful thing, the most holy thing that God could do would be to take the sins of the world upon his shoulders. It's like God at his peak godness, if you want a phrase. Peak godness is Jesus rising to new life, to bring new life with him into new creation and new life for all of us who believe in him and follow Jesus. And going to the cross was also other person-centered love. It was also humble. It was also generous. It was also an act of love. This is peak godness. This is God's glory. And so it's the climactic moment of the whole gospel story. The cross is the hour where Jesus, the Son, is glorified by the Father and where the Son brings glory to the Father. When the Word, when Jesus, who became flesh, who made his home, his long-term home among us, showed us what true glory looks like, showed us what peak godness looks like, and it was full of grace and truth. Now, there's a bit in 2 Corinthians where Paul, one of the uh, Bible writers, authors, is Comparing these two stories, he's taking what Moses did in Exodus and taking what John says at the start of John, and I guess has a bit of a commentary on them. And this is what Paul says, or Emma's summary of what Paul says. If I'm honest, I think being at the top of a mountain with God would be very cool. Like, imagine being there and it's just you and God and there's a cloud or there's a pillar of something and you're having this conversation, right? Who wouldn't want, I mean, I go hiking, right? But I don't see that, have that kind of God experience at the top of a mountain. And to ask God to show, show me his glory and he basically says yes, but with a few conditions so that I will live. And then there's a little hole there that I go and snuggle up in and he goes past and isn't, wouldn't that be cool? And yet Paul says, yeah, 
that, but not as cool as knowing Jesus, not as transformational as the gospel story. Knowing Jesus is even more transformational, even more glorious than the experience that Moses had up on that mountain with God. Now, Moses was an entirely new person in many respects after each encounter that he has with God. And God uses him in incredible ways to lead God's people. And yet, Paul says, how much more transformational is it for us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit? How much more transformational for us is that than it was for Moses? In fact, he says, what was glorious has no glory anymore. Now, in comparison with the gospel story, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, with the surpassing glory... And Paul continues by writing that God's glory will not just transform us, but it will fill us with hope. It will change us. It will grow us in love. He says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, God's glory, we are being transformed into Jesus' image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from God. It's even better than the transformation. It is even better than the intimate relationship and knowing that Moses had at the top of the mountain. So this is why I want us to be a community of glory gazers, people who look on really intentionally into the glory of Jesus, people who have seen his glory, people who are transformed by it, people who radiate it to each other, people who show God's glory to the world. So it would be kind of like, you know how you might introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Emma. I'm a pastor at Mary Creek Anglican. Well, another way we could say it is, hi, I'm Emma. Wait for it, it's cheesy. I'm a glory gazer. I made the Clifton Hill guys say it to each other and it didn't, they were very uncomfortable. But I want you to like imagine the discomfort of turning to the person next to you and saying, hi, I'm Steph and I'm a glory gazer. Because that is the vocation, that is the calling of someone who follows Jesus. The person I was talking about at the start, this is them. They are a glory gazer. And when I probed further um, into what they've been up to this year, they said they they are a glory gazer primarily in two ways. They are a glory gazer because they read a story, they've committed to reading a story from the gospel each day, a story about Jesus, and asking the Holy Spirit to shine again and again and again the glory of Jesus, making those stories come alive, that they would be meeting Jesus in these stories, in these scriptures. They would be asking God to show show them his true godness in these stories. And they're being glory gazers by just being honest with Christian friends like myself about the ups and downs of life, where they're going well, where they're struggling, and seeing the glory that is um, available in the church, the glory of God that is radiated off our faces to each other. And that's why I think this is the... uh, This is what a resource that God gives us for when we're feeling ground down, when it's not just that it's the end of the year, but there's a deep soul tiredness, 
when following Jesus maybe doesn't make heaps of sense in every aspect of life, when you're the only person at work who's a Christian, when you're the only person, um, your family is the only family at school who go to church and who follow Jesus. Being a glory gazer means that rather than looking in all of these other places, we look towards Jesus. And we, with hopeful expectation, believe that he will use that to transform our lives. Following Jesus, as John puts it, is being children of the light, children of God in a dark world. And this is only possible by looking at Jesus. If you think that gritting your teeth and bearing it and just putting one foot in the front of the other and soldiering on on your own, you can do it for a bit, but it's exhausting. And Jesus says there's a better way. It's a way of looking at Jesus, coming to him. Maybe it's reading our Bibles, talking with each other. It's coming in prayer and it's looking at Jesus and being glory gazers and knowing deep in our souls that even the incredible glory that we have now is still only a taste of what will come when Jesus returns. Because Paul says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then when Jesus returns, then we will see face to face. He describes our situation as knowing in part and describes our future as knowing fully, even as we are fully known. Because it's Christmas, soon, I thought I'd end with a, how this looks in the Christmas story. So this Christmas, let us remember the shepherds. You will know it, I'm sure. There were shepherds who were out tending their sheep, keeping, or keeping watch over their flocks by night, I think is the technical word, uh, phrase. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Did you know that today, in a town not very far from here, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you? He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one we have been longing for. He is the Lord. God reveals his glory to them. And you know what they do? They hurry. They run. They hurry off to see Jesus. And I think that's my encouragement for us this morning. Ask God to show you his glory. Expect him to reveal his goodness, his grace his truth to you, and then hurry off in your turning to him. Hurry off and turn to Jesus. And this is what it looks like for us to be glory gazers. So let's pray. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favour rests. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you glory this morning. We say that you are good, that you are full of grace and truth, that you are the God of light, that you are the God of life, and that you are the God of love. God, would you reveal your glory to us this morning? Would you reveal your glory to us? Meet us in dark places with the light of Christ. 
Meet us in hard places with the hope of new creation. Meet us in our joy, joy caused by the birth of our Saviour. We'll continue in prayer.